You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Andrew Soss is a professor and the chair of the sociology department at the University of California at Santa Cruz. He is the author of the book Ecopopulism. His new book is Shopping Our Way to Safety, How We Changed from Protecting the Environment to Protecting Ourselves. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. My pleasure. Andrew, this is a fascinating book, and and at its heart you have this great concept of what you call an inverted quarantine. Could you explain that concept to us? Uh, Yes, I think the easiest way to uh, understand it is to think about classic quarantine, which we have had for hundreds of years. Um, And the underlying um, concept of quarantine is that there are a few uh, hazardous individuals, uh, but the general community is healthy and safe. And so the community moves to protect itself by, by walling off, isolating Um, the vectors for the disease. Um, And so there's a kind of a dyad of uh, diseased individuals, healthy environment. Now, in the current situation, uh, my sense is that we live in a thoroughly chemicalized environment and that people are rightly concerned that some of the yeast chemicals which we are eating, breathing, drinking uh, can cause illness for ourselves and our children. So if the situation is that the whole environment is potentially toxic or disease-inducing, then what the inverted quarantine idea is that you create a barrier or a wall and you get inside yourself. So you create kind of a small bubble of clean space around your body. Um, And so it reverses that clean environment, healthy environment, diseased individuals. And so now the situation is a generally threatening and perhaps disease-inducing environment, and you create a barrier and you climb inside. You you quarantine yourself from it. This is not just an inverted quarantine, but this inverts a lot of other societal and social behaviors as well, doesn't it? Well, uh, I think of it as a as the kind of the opposite of what I studied. I used to study um, environmental movements, and this is kind of the opposite of the movement, um, in the sense that uh, it's it's a form of environmental uh, consciousness. People are aware that there is a threat, but rather than choose the political option, which is to join with others, uh, to organize, to protest, uh, to demand uh, changes. Um, people instead individually opt out and try to buy their way out of trouble. And one of the interesting aspects of this is that this leads us to abandon uh, attempts at, at, at regulation, and, and we're using the power of the marketplace. Now, isn't the power of the marketplace working? Isn't that a good thing? Um, I think it's a hazardous thing. Um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, People believe that they are buying themselves protection, um, but the evidence is relatively weak that that it works. In certain kinds of things, such as uh, uh, purchasing organic foods, uh, 
um, the evidence, although there's relatively scant evidence, there aren't that many studies, but the studies that have been done suggest that people do get some benefit. There are lower levels of pesticide residues in the bodies of people who eat organic foods. Uh, the evidence for bottled water is uh, much more mixed. Uh, um, it's not clear that the average person who purchases bottled water gets any significant protection from what they believe are hazardous substances in tap water. Uh, so that's the first problem. The actual amount of protection one manages to get uh, is questionable. Uh, the second problem is that people um, believe that they are uh, purchasing real protection. They believe that they have done something about it. And um, what I argue in the book is that, um, I mean, essentially we're all very busy people with lots of things that concern us, whether it's our health, our family, our finances. And so anytime we believe that we've taken care of some particular threat, we tend to worry about something else. And so to the degree that people who buy bottled water, use water filters, um, buy, quote, organic or, quote, natural or, quote, non-toxic household cleaning materials, to the degree that they believe that this has helped to protect them and their families, I think that they're less likely to then engage in the kind of political activities that would be necessary to strengthen um, regulatory laws uh, to really clean up the environment. Well, the consequence of this then is that the marketplace has found a way to profit off of its own pollution. Well, that's, <laughs> if you like irony <laughs> and black humor, uh, I guess you could argue that way. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's in a certain way, I want to point out, I don't think that this is irrational on the part of individuals and for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, there are all these new studies in the last you know, five, six, seven years called biomonitoring studies. And what they consistently show is that every person in this society has in their bodies literally hundreds of different kinds of substances, uh, usually in very tiny quantities. These can be PCBs, dioxins, plasticizers, pesticide residues, hormones, fire retardants, that doesn't sound like they belong in our bodies. Um, <laughs> Maybe well, I might like a fire retardant. The interesting thing is we know something about uh, what they do to us in uh, high uh, concentrations, higher levels of exposure, and one substance at a time. The real situation is that we're exposed to hundreds of things in very tiny concentrations, and very little is known about the real health effects. But so what I'm saying is it's not irrational for people to be worried uh, that they are, when they're eating food, drinking water, uh, breathing the air, that they are, in fact, uh, taking into their bodies substances that may not be good for them. Um, it's also not irrational to act individually in a period where, for some years now, the real uh, effective regulations have been decreasing especially at the federal level, where I think in the first Reagan administration and then now in the current Bush administration, there have been substantial cutbacks in uh, the ability of regulatory agencies to do their work. Uh, and so 
it makes sense to me that if you are concerned um, and you don't exactly trust the regulatory laws and the, these agencies to protect you, that you would want to do something immediately, individually, to take care of yourself and your kids. Uh, so in that sense, it, it, it's not irrational. The concerns I have are, again, that it's not that effective. Uh, and second of all, because people believe that it is effective, they are less likely uh, to do something significant about it. For example, let me just give you an example, if it's okay. Um, take water. Um, by some estimates, it's going to take uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in the next 20 years to, um, to repair the water infrastructure in this country, uh, to keep the, the uh, filters and the piping and the water purification processes all in good repair, uh, in fact, to upgrade them because the population is growing and there's more demands for water, and also to change these processes to take care of new kinds of pollutants. Um, you don't see an awful lot of uh, outrage or political uproar uh, about... Uh, the fact that the federal government is not about to spend hundreds of billions of dollars uh, for these kind of infrastructural uh, repairs and upgrades. And um, to me, part of the reason why you don't see this kind of uproar is that a significant percentage of the population have opted out, or they think they have opted out, by drinking bottled water, cooking with bottled water, installing water filters in their kitchens and in their showers. Um, and so this is, I think, one example of the way that uh, this kind of uh, imaginary opting out from the hazard uh, decreases the political viability, the political will of uh, citizens to do something about the problem and to pressure the political system to act upon it. I, I want to ask you about like, the, the episode that begins the book because this is fascinating to me the fallout shelter panic of 1961 yeah. all i can think of is the line from dr strangelove we must not allow a mine shaft gap <laughs> yes i i have um i have a scene i uh i inserted there from uh, dr strangelove uh where uh general jack d ripper talks about uh, the need to keep your bodily fluids pure um well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I started looking at uh, the fallout shelter because I'm attracted as a sociologist to looking at extreme examples. Uh, I sometimes think that to understand a phenomenon, you want to find something in its purest and maybe even in its most grotesque form. And I was a teenager myself in 1961, when um, Jack Kennedy had a very bad uh, run-in with uh, Premier Khrushchev and came back and gave a talk on TV basically saying, um, to stand up to the Russians, we have to be prepared for the maximum sacrifice, or the greatest sacrifice. And everyone said, what's that? It must mean atomic war. And then they said, 
well, tell us what we can do. And uh, there were some recommendations at that point. There was a whole several-month panic and a lot of discussion about building backyard shelters. And um, I, I found this a very attractive example because it, it, it was a, a clear example of inverted quarantine. You know, you have a, a giant collective threat, right? I mean, if you read what atomic war would have meant uh, for society as a whole, it simply beggars the imagination. Uh, and yet for a couple of months, people believed that if you put in a single room and filled it with enough food for you and your kids for two weeks, that um, you could come out afterwards and somehow pick up your life and rebuild and carry on. Um, and so it has all the qualities of you know, not dealing with the collective problem, uh, thinking that you can buy your way out of it, uh, consume your way out of it by building a shelter as an individual, uh, and that would do the trick. The other reason why that was so attractive to me was that the whole thing fell apart, that there was a, a fairly sturdy um, social movement that was spearheaded by some religious figures, also by some university professors, uh, anti-war uh, nuclear scientists, who began to say out in public, no, no, this is lunacy, it's never going to work. And eventually that point of view um, went out. And people talked about building shelters, and everyone that I have ever talked to knew somebody who built a shelter somewhere in their community. Uh, so people did do it, but most didn't. And after that whole shelter thing collapsed, then the Soviet Union and the United States got together and they signed arms control treaties and they installed those kind of hotline red phones in the White House and the Kremlin. And so moving away from the fantasy of individual salvation prepared, I think, the other road a much more rational road, which was to reduce tensions, uh, to make sure there's no accidental nuclear war. And uh, so I think of that as a very positive, one of, one of the few positive examples that I could find where the, collect the rejection of inverted quarantine uh, led to a much more positive uh, political outcome. The other example I can think of, I think, is the is the International Ozone Treaty, the Montreal Protocol. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, no, I, I'm not. Ex please uh, describe it. Um, well, you know, some years ago, scientists be discovered what they refer to colloquially as the ozone hole uh, above the Antarctic. Oh, yeah, I remember that. It was, it was our deodorant that was causing that. It was BAM. Um, we had to ban the BAM. Yeah, it is more like the refrigerants, um, CFCs, and um, and so it was, a, it was a shocking discovery. It wasn't really a hole; it was just a significant thinning of the ozone layer, and uh, a lot of panic about what that would mean uh, um, for uh, various species, and um, very rapidly, the international community got together and reached uh, agreements to uh, fairly
they quickly banned the use of CFCs and to find other refrigerants. Uh, it's not perfect, but it does have this quality of um, of a successful kind of regulatory answer to the problem. And it very well could have gone the other direction, I think, because you know for years the dermatologists have had this campaign against sun um, sun tanning. Oh yes, yes. And the whole notion there was that people, you know, used to think that it was beautiful to be have a rich deep tan, so people would go to the beach. And, and um, ultimately, people found out that it caused the degeneration of the skin. Sometimes it caused melanoma. Definitely not a good thing. So for some years, the dermatologists had already spearheaded this uh, campaign for people to wear sunscreen, to wear hats, uh, to cover up when they go out in the middle of the day. And it could very well have happened um, that the, the, kind of the inverted quarantine response to the ozone problem could have been well, it's just a question of your individual eyesight and your skin. So, you know, put on more sunscreen, uh, wear sunglasses with UV protection, don't go out between uh, 10 and 2. And there are little cities on, on the southern tip of South America where they ha actually have ozone alerts, um, where they advise people. You know, the ozone hole is pretty, pretty deep today, so um, you know, don't go out without wearing your hat. Um, and in this case, a very good thing happened, which was that instead of the ozone problem being dealt with through this sort of individualized, you know, just use better sunscreen thing, that very quickly there was this international agreement that actually, like said, we need to deal with this problem substantively. And to all, you know, from what I can tell from looking at the literature, um, it's a long-term, 40- or 50-year process, but uh, they believe that, that the ozone layer will recover over time, uh, given the actual agreements that have been reached. Which would not be the case had we not reached a societal collective agreement. That's right. We've been speaking with Andrew Soss. His new book is Shopping Our Way to Safety. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Uh, well, thank you for uh, talking to me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.